Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. For years, criminal organizations around the world were buying a special phone called Anom. The pitch was that it was completely anonymous and secure, a way for criminals to do business without authorities watching over their shoulder. It turned out that the whole thing was an elaborate honeypot and that the FBI and other law enforcement agencies around the world were listening in. They'd developed the phone. They had developed the phones themselves. The fallout from that revelation is ongoing, and here at Motherboard, we've just learned how the phones work, what the code was. Motherboard staff writer Joseph Cox has looked at the code and understands how cops across the world programmed a special phone that would listen in while criminals did business. He's here with us today to walk us through the code behind the phone that the FBI helped build. It is the subject of his new story, this is the code the FBI used to wiretap the world. You know, in retrospect, I think I used code too many times in that intro, but here we are. JC, thank you again for coming on this week doing double duty. Uh, yes, no problem. Thank you for having me. All right, so you've been covering this story for a long time. I believe we've talked about it on the show before. Uh, what is new now? What's new now is that recently we obtained the APK which is the Android file of the Android app of Anom itself. Um, When we're going to say Anom in this conversation, it's going to mean a lot of things. It's going to mean the company, generally speaking, that developed this, which was secretly managed by the FBI. It's going to talk about the phones that we've discussed previously. And it's also going to primarily talk about the app, which is this encrypted uh, communications app that was backdoored secretly by the FBI. So we obtained that app essentially we weren't able to do that before because the phone that we got had a locked bootloader which the long and short of it is makes it a lot more difficult to extract the apk from the device so we get this apk and i decompiled it and analyzed it um and we corroborated our findings and we've published them today uh in this piece which i think is the first sort of public look and public explanation of how this fbi backdoor actually worked all right, well, let's go back and hit some of the basics here. Because, uh, again, we've talked about this before, but I just want to make sure that everyone's up to speed who's listening and watching. Um, so when did you first find report on Anom, and what did we know at the time? So I think you've written three or four stories about this thing, right? Yeah, maybe even more, to be honest. Um I covered the encrypted phone industry for a long, long time, which is this industry of companies that caters primarily to um, organized criminals. Um, sometimes they know that, sometimes they don't. Um, oftentimes they do know. Um, and then eventually, just last year, in June 2021, the FBI, the Australian Federal Police, and their partners at Europol came forward and announced that, hey, one of these phone companies was actually us. It was run by the FBI. And I should just clarify the word run there because I think it is okay to use, but it's not the most accurate term. What happened was in 2018, the FBI shut down one of these encrypted phone companies called Phantom Secure. In the wake of that, somebody offered them the capability to run their own company. This was a nom. It was already in development. It was already a company in its own right, but it was very much in the embryonic stage. This person offered this company to the FBI for them to use in their own investigations. 
And the long and short of it is, is that the FBI secretly puppet mastered that company from 2018 all the way up to June 2021. And during that time, they collected tons of information about the criminal users to the point where it started very small, but it eventually ballooned to over 12,000 devices in countries all over the world, obviously used by thousands and you know over 10,000 people, uh, potentially, and in the hands of over 300 distinct criminal syndicates. It is one of, if not the largest undercover law enforcement operation ever. And what kind of information were they collecting exactly? Like, what were they able to see? So initially, the backdoor was just really focused on text messages. Um, a lot of these phones, especially in the, in that sort of industry, they will have the GPS removed. They have the microphone removed. They can only send um, encrypted emails, or at least that, that's how it used to be. And then, you know, in the last few years, maybe the last five, six, they started to do more encrypted instant messaging. Um, so that's all they could do. Uh, Anon was sort of a next generation device in that it did eventually allow voice memos as well. And the FBI got those. And the other bit of sort of crucial information that they got was that the phone also gathered GPS data. Uh, and attach that to every single message that was being sent, or as many messages as it could, as the software allowed, and gave those to the FBI and its law enforcement partners as well. You know, it, it was a highly effective backdoor that led to, you know, by now, uh, over a thousand arrests around the world. Yeah, just how could we talk a little bit more about just how big this was? Uh, so I think the two main players that you've written about are Australia and the FBI in the US, right? Who else had, who else was part of this? Yeah, Australia was sort of the nexus for a long time. That was where they did a beta test of the Anon platform. It started there trickling out, you know, little by little until eventually it actually became quite a popular um, platform of choice in that, in that country. Sort of the only other main competitor at the time was Cypher. Uh, and as a side note, as we've also reported, when the FBI and its partners revealed it was behind Anom, Cypher seemingly freaked out and pulled out of the Australian markets. Like, we're not even going to sell our phones in Australia anymore. Um, but when it comes to scale, yes, over a thousand arrests. It was hundreds of arrests on the day, but obviously stuff has picked up. We're talking about, I believe, multiple tons of drugs, uh, primarily cocaine, and then shutting down methamphetamine labs as well. And as you say, beyond Australia, there was also a very large nexus in Europe. And that is where a lot of the uh, phones ended up. And of course, why Europol uh, became involved. They, in the latter sort of third of the operation, I, I would say, or the latter, the sort of the closing section of the operation, there was a Europol task force called Operational Task Force Greenlight, which brought together over a dozen countries. So, you know, Sweden, I think Norway, um, I don't think Serbia was in the task force, but they were involved as well. UK was in there. I'm not going to remember all of them off the top of my head, but it became a very, very large um, operation involving all of these um, countries. Now, not all of them arrested a ton of people, necessarily, but they all had access to that data and were all using it in some sort of way. 
Right. And I want to be clear here, as far as we know, for based on the arrests, and again, like law enforcement is the source of most of this stuff. So keep with that caveat in mind, um, we are not talking about like street level dealers uh, dealing like a couple grams of weed. This is like transnational cartel, big level stuff, right? Yeah, I would, I, I would generally agree with that. And I'd say if it, any of the lower people who were arrested, you know, there were corrupt, uh, corrupt workers in ports in Australia or even corrupt workers in like airports in Australia. I guess they're technically on the lower end, but those are the sorts of people who are facilitating these you know, transnational cartels and these drug shipments, especially to Australia, because it is basically a gold mine for drug trafficking where you can sell cocaine for something like eight times the price you would get in the United States. So if you're going to try and sell cocaine, you try to get it into um, Australia. But yeah, 300 different crime groups. The phones were also in South America, you know, so we're dealing with the production of these drugs as well through to the smugglers in Europe. And then, you know, ultimately the distributors, and that could be, at least in Australia, that would be um, a lot of the biker gangs, the outlaw mot motorcycle gangs, such as the Comicheros, who basically act as sort of the the last mile delivery system in the way of when it comes to distributing um, these narcotics. All right. So maybe this is a stupid question, but if you've got some, a device like this that works, um, why blow up the honeypot? Because the, the, the FBI kind of announced, if I recall correctly, the FBI kind of announced that this thing was out there and, and the, they had done this, correct? Is that kind of how we, mm -hmm. or like, what was the the chain of uh, information here that you figured out figured out about this, and like, how soon did the FBI confirm it? Well, I, I think just on, on on why they came out with it, because I mean, we look, I I didn't know that Anom was a honeypot until the FBI came out with it. I didn't know Anom existed before the FBI came out of it, because of, for all of the large scale arrests, it was still maybe relatively speaking a small slice of the encrypted phone industry in that um sky global another company we've covered in which uh, the fbi also shut down and european officials launched a technical uh, operation against that had something like a hundred thousand phones in circulation so 10 times the size of a nom a nom did get brand recognition it did get criminals onto its platform but it wasn't the biggest player um, in this space. So I, I, I would just say that, and I didn't know um, before then. But for the reason for the FBI coming forward, I mean, you can't prosecute people without evidence, you know? And of course, the FBI does have intelligence components. It is technically part of the intelligence community. It is also a law enforcement agency which provides evidence for prosecutors, you know, to then go do their thing. Um, and then in European courts, Australian courts, they're going to need evidence. You can't necessarily just go and parallel construct hundreds, if not thousands of arrests. Well, maybe you could, but it sounds like a massive pain. So it, they'd have to come forward at some point. And, you know, the, and they did eventually. All right. So I've got a question in chat here that that's probably something we don't have an answer to. Uh, you might, but I'm going to ask it. Uh, this is from Gunnar Burns. I remember reading articles about this story. Did anyone suspect the FBI was doing this before they admitted to it? Sometimes people have suspected the FBI takeover of dark, some darknet markets before they admit to it. Do, we have any, do you have any idea? Um, not on any widespread scale. Okay. Um, uh, people are always throwing accusations 
about the encrypt- these encrypted phone companies is kind of a just like a, a common thing in the industry where you'll say, hey, this, this company's actually working for the NCA, uh, NSA, sorry, this company's working for FBI or whoever. Um, so those accusations get thrown around. Of course, the funny thing is, in this case, it was actually true. Um, but that doesn't mean they actually knew that. It's more that it can just be a little bit of suspicion or uh, an accusation. Yeah, but that's pretty common in this industry. Right, and I would imagine that... When you when you're the FBI and you kind of come out and say like, "Hey, we've taken this thing over," it, it causes everyone everyone to start looking sideways at, at everything, right? It right. kind of that, throws that doubt was, and paranoia into the whole organization. Yes, I mean that was one of the explicit goals. I mean, very shortly after the news came out, um, we spoke to a prosecutor who who worked on this. They didn't work right up to the end, but they were there in the beginning, and you know they told us on the record that. P- of course, part of it is to, you know, get evidence and arrest people. The sort of underlying goal, though, perhaps the most important one, was to shatter criminals' trust in the underground, hardened, encrypted device industry. Because now, and I know this personally from criminals I speak to, from phone sellers I speak to, people are very, very paranoid to the point where they've gone back to a lot more rude, you know, fundamental or rudimentary technologies. Um, so in that way, they've been successful. I really don't think criminals are going to buy an encrypted phone nowadays, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars for a six or 12 month subscription. I don't think they're going to buy those without that sort of nagging suspicion that this could be a honeypot because it absolutely could like being intellectually honest, it absolutely could be another honeypot. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, several listeners, thank you for sticking around. We are back talking to Joseph Cox about the Anom phone. Let's, all right, let's dive into this new information, this, the, the code that you were able to kind of break into and look at. Um, it was designed to solve the going dark problem you wrote. What exactly is that problem? Yeah, going dark is a term coined by law enforcement. So, you know, bear that in mind. This isn't really something that civil um, community has come up with. This is a term penned by law enforcement. But it's a really, really long-running perceived issue in which law enforcement agencies will say that they can no longer follow criminals, certain types of criminals, and prosecute them because of the issues that encryption presents. I mean, one of the most recent examples is, of course, 2016, the San Bernardino terrorist attack, where one of the terrorists uh, had a phone 
that Apple refused to unlock because doing so, you know, they'd have to introduce a weaker operating system. There were all these security concerns and the DOJ took them um, to court, you know, until eventually Asimov Security, as we know, which is a company me and Lorenzo have covered, um, provided the tool to um, unlock it. Uh, another case would be the Clipper chip. You know, I think that, that was way back in the Clinton days where they were trying to uh, do another hardware solution there and that was chucked down uh, and then I guess the other one a bit more recently is Apple's now put on ice or scrapped plans to scan um, Apple image content for child abuse imagery I can't remember the specifics off the top of my head but I would probably put that in the same sort of bracket as well so that is the going dark problem where every few years law enforcement will bring up a new thing at the moment, it's child abuse. Before that, it was terrorists. Um, but all the meanwhile, all while those discussions have been going on, I've been covering the crypto phone industry where the real stuff happens. You know, I, 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 this is why I started covering this industry in the first place, because so many people were obsessed with the Facebooks and the WhatsApps and that sort of thing. I'm like, the top tier drug traffickers aren't even on those. They're using these phones from an industry that nobody's paying attention to. And then I know I felt kind of vindicated when a nom happened. I was like, see, <laughs> this is important. Um, so that's how we got there. And that, and that is sort of where a nom fits in, in that wider going dark uh, context. This is how law enforcement agencies are exploring uh, this problem in the real world. All right. So what exactly... How exactly did the code work? What was it doing? Right. I mean, it's pretty ingenious to to give them credit. So usually in an end-to-end encrypted system, you'll have two phones, let's say, and they want to send secure messages to each other. The encryption happens on the device itself. It's not done by the server. So whoever the server is won't be able to just decrypt the message, remove that protection, and then read it. It's purely between the two devices. That all makes sense. We're all familiar with that. That's how WhatsApp generally works. That's how Signal works, Wire, Wicker, whatever. Um, Anon, in its development, introduced a very interesting thing in which it sort of copied every single message or blind carbon copied BCC in the same cell way you would do an email to a hidden contact called bot. Now, when I first decompiled the APK and I went through it, um, I was obviously trying to understand how this backdoor worked. And I came across this username called bot. It's like bot at something, something, something. And that's the username. Um, And I'm looking at that and I'm going through the code and seeing what it does. And it seems to be doing something with the contact list. There's like, it mentions contact UI, so, you know, contact user interface, something like that. And my feeling was that it looks like it's hiding itself or the app is trying to hide this contact. And I've seen photos of active Anom devices, ones that were being used at the time when the network was live. And you look through the contact list there's no, there's nothing called bot. There's nothing on there. There's customer support, which is support at blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's also a backup feature, which I don't think was used all that much, but there's no bot. So that we eventually discover through more corroboration was this silent ghost contact that was copying every single message that was being sent um, across this platform. In a way, it's taking end-to-end encryption and adding another end to it, a third end to that chain of custody of those messages. 
and this is all done, uh, and forgive me my for not being super technical, with XMPP, right? Which is a, a protocol for sending instant messages. Yeah, so XM, XMPP is a long-established instant messaging protocol, basically. So when you have people say, oh, let's chat on Jabber, as me and Lorenzo, uh, well, not so often now because it's full of bloody spam every time you log on, but we used to talk to a lot of, a lot of hackers on there. And that's Jabber, XMPP, basically. So you have that very basic protocol, which is great and robust, whatever, and then people layer it in different coatings of encryption. And that's changed over the years. You know, you have something called OTR messaging, off-the-record messaging, which adds the encryption, that sort of thing. So it's kind of basic in that way, but basic because XMPP works, you know, is very, very functional. So when it comes to the actual chatting on a NOM, that is, is, that's what it's using. Yeah. All right. So how hard would it have been for a tech-savvy criminal to do what you did, to bust open the phone, take a look inside and say, look around and say, something's not quite right here. It would have been very, very difficult for them to look at the app because you can't get it off the phone, which is the issue that we had when we we have the phone, mm-hmm. as mentioned, but, but we can't get the Android APK off there. So thankfully I have a source who was able to provide that um, because they had access to it. So that's how we were able to do it. So the criminal wouldn't be able to do that. What they might be able to do, and you know what it appears some people may have done, is that they could have intercepted the traffic coming off the phone. Now, we do this all the time when we look into location data. We'll look at, oh, let's download this sketchy app. Let's see what outbound connections it's making, and we can go from there. Um, the thing is, is that they may have been able to intercept the traffic, but it might have been difficult to see what was actually going on because the FBI built a very complicated series of servers that try to mask it. You know, there was this third country, which we've reported was based in the European Union, which actually received the messages from all of the devices and then gave it to the FBI. This was basically a legal workaround. So they could do this operation. They could not do it based purely on US law. And I'm not going to get into the super technicalities of it because it gets very, very complicated. But on a technical level, they had the third country that was getting the messages from the phones. But what they also had was a proxy server which masked the location of that third country. So theoretically speaking, if you were intercepting traffic on a live and non-phone when the network was up, you may have seen outbound connections, but you may not have seen them going to a to the right place. Like It, w- it would have been muddied, potentially. Yeah. All right, I'm going to give this a shot. We're going to see what happens. Let me see if I can pull up. I've got a little diagram uh, that is from law enforcement files that you obtained, right? That kind of gives you a, a, a map of what's going on here. Yeah, little it's beautiful. A super, Look at that. A super high level overview of what this system was. So you see, yeah, it just has an AWS server there, which is, you know, just for reliability purposes. And then on the right, you have the XMPP Jabber server, which is, you know, that's the actual chat server where stuff is going on. Uh, as you can see, number three, that arrow is routing the message to Bob. That's all fine. But that yellow arrow and little diamond, that's the bot. That is the extra end that's being introduced and sending a copy of the messages 
um, towards. Obviously, on a technical level, it's a lot more complicated than that, but this was included in um, law enforcement documents I got, which explain how it works on that sort of level. All right. Let's also take a look at, if we can go up. So this is, you were saying, we're getting... They're making fun of the ads I get. See, this is what I ha- This is what happens when I don't have my pie hole up and running. I'm getting all these strange mm-hmm. ads. I don't even know what Bellroy is. And here we are. Mm-hmm. Anyway, aside from that, all right, so we're looking at uh, – what am I looking at here? So this was the first mention of bots that I found in the code when I started digging through it. And these are a section, uh, a selection of different contacts that are baked into the phone. So as mentioned, there's the support one there, which is customer support. When you had a non-phone, if you had an issue, there was a dedicated button in the app that you would push and you would talk immediately to a customer support representative. That is very, very common in the crypto phone industry. Maybe you need to report a bug or maybe you want to buy another license. I mean, you would probably go to your distributor for that, but you can do that. Echo, I believe, was some sort of testing feature. So that was also on there. Backup, as I mentioned, there was a backup feature, but I don't think it was used particularly heavily. It was just so you could back up the contacts. Um, Yeah, I think you could just back up your contacts. So then if you wanted to move to another device, you could do that. And then there, that is the one that stood out, bot. It's like, what the hell is that? And that started the path down of looking into it. And I should just say that, yes, I decompiled the app. I started the analysis. I got the law enforcement documents, that sort of thing. But we did corroborate and greatly expand upon our findings with two trusted reverse engineers who I'm not going to name, but they helped validate what, what what my suspicions were about bot. And then they also found more stuff that we included in the piece as well. So I'm very thankful to them for doing that. Right. I'm going to scroll down to this last bit of code here that I think we've got in here. So this, what am I looking at here? And for the audience uh, listening, it just looks like uh, typical code. You know, we've got an if this statement, uh, close parentheses, all, all like you're, you're looking at code, but you see... Uh, commented in here, bot, and then you've got highlighted bot get recreated, got recreated at the server. Yeah, I mean, so the actual code itself is not really going to make much sense outside of the context of what else is going on. But the reason I included it was just because of that that uh, that message that gets printed. Bots got recreated at the server, which again, when I was very early on looking through the code, it's like, well, well, bot is being set up somewhere. Then bot is doing something, uh, and then again, as we found later through the assistance of um, the reverse engineers, you know, it's receiving uh, data, basically, and, of course, corroborated by the documents. But, yeah, the, we didn't include much of the code itself for various reasons. It's more just to explain how it worked and then just to show that it's specifically the bot contact, because that's the important part. Do we know who wrote the code or where it came from? Um, yes, there is information in the app that shows who worked on it. And that's why we're not releasing it because these are people who did not know they were making an app as part of a FBI operation. So that's why we're not publicly releasing the app or distributing it, um, any further basically. Yeah. And forgive me if I, I misread, but it also sounded like some of it was copy pasted from another app. Yes. So 
um, that's something one of the experts found is that a lot of it was copied from another um, open source communications app. We're not going to name that just so uh, for source protection um, reasons, but it the reason that's important to mention is that it shows that a lot of this code was pulled from various sources. This was not really a bespoke, elegant tool. I think other parts of the operation were, such as Arcane OS, which we've spoken about in the piece when we got the phone, which was an entire dedicated operating system which ran on the Anom devices. Uh, my understanding is that that was much more elegantly developed and produced um, very favorable results, especially when it came to the GPS data. When it came to the Anom app itself, it is very, very messy. It's very, there's lots of codes commented out. As you say, some of it was copied from another app. And that is absolutely no hate to the developers of this app. My understanding is that they were in a great hurry to finish um, this project. So, you know, absolutely no hate against them. And, you know, I think they worked with what they could do. But the reason that's important is because, and I think we'll get into this in a little bit, is that defense lawyers may argue that you probably shouldn't be running a large-scale surveillance operation from code you copied off GitHub, you know? And how is that going to factor into issues of the chain of custody of the evidence, the forensic link between uh, the app and the people who allegedly used it? Um, these are all sort of questions that are going to have to be answered in court, basically. Well, let's get into that now, because I thought that was a really fascinating part of the story, and I want to hear more about it. Uh, kind of towards the end, you start kind of picking apart. So this is all pretty new stuff. Um, this is stuff that's going to have to go to court, like you said. What are the concerns of the lawyers kind of on both sides about like how this operation was conducted? What are the, uh, the foibles maybe is the word. What, what, what are the particulars of, of using this to catch people? So in Australia, where most of the sort of justice part of this operation are happening, because you know, that's where most people were arrested at least, uh, initially, Defense lawyers there have various different sort of prongs of strategy. One is to attack the legality of the warrants used, and there's some sort of very technical details about, well, did they actually have authorization to do this? Because Australia passed a very controversial encryption law just before or around the time, but then they actually used a different authorization, blah, blah, blah. So there's sort of a legal argument on that side. There is also a more technical argument in that uh well i suppose it's a combination of a technical and a, a judicial one because defense lawyers including the one who we quote in our piece uh she says that you know clients and well defense lawyers should be able to review this code you know to make sure it actually works so they can provide a defense and you know this, this brings up echoes of another fbi operation that we reported extensively on called operation pacifier when Visitors to a dark web child abuse site uh, over the Tor network were automatic, automatically hacked when they logged into the child abuse site via a likely zero day for the Tor browser bundle. 
um, why I bring that up is because defense lawyers in the United States said, we have to see the code of this to verify it worked. Basically, the FBI said no. They retroactively classified it, so then you won't be able to access it. And the long and the short of it is the FBI had to throw cases out because they weren't willing to give up the code. I'm not saying that's going to happen in a nom, but Australian defense lawyers have at least requested or explored the possibility of getting this code. And the Australian Federal Police has said you're not going to get it under some various um, statutes and defense uh, various defences in Australian law. So this sort of code could be important for defence teams, depending on what strategy they're taking. And, you know, to be balanced and to be fair, one um, defence lawyer who works on anom cases said, eh, it's probably not relevant for the cases. And another said it is, but it shouldn't be publicly available. And I think we struck a balance here in that we didn't just dump the code. I think that would be outrageously irresponsible and we're we're never going to do that and we're never going to publicly release it as i said but there is a public interest in understanding a bit more about its hurried development that brings up questions whether there are any bugs in this code um which could impact the investigation and you know maybe defense lawyers can go from there and final thing on that point you know it is not our goal to help defense lawyers that would be very inappropriate you know that's not our role as journalists our role is to obtain, verify, and publish information that can contribute to a conversation around this topic. So we have to strike a very delicate balance there between, you know, you, you're not really helping the lawyers, but you still think there's information that's in the public interest that should be published. So that's how the piece ended up as it did. Let me let me attempt a crude metaphor here. It is, a, is, it is as if law enforcement has a magic box and they say, all right, this magic box allows us to read your messages. Uh, and you're in trouble because of the messages you sent. And the lawyers are saying, well, show us how the box works. You could just be making all of this up. Uh, and law enforcement saying, no. Um, yeah, that's basically it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and, and look, and, 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 I, and it's just to be fair to, you know, AFP, FBI, the FBI statement, um, which I would bring up if my laptop was working, you know, they, they say they have concerns that releasing the code would result in situations not in the public interest, like exposure of source and methods, as well as providing a playbook for others to include criminal elements to duplicate the application without the substantial time and resource investment necessary to create such an application. And they think similar um, consequences may happen if we only publish a small part of the code. I don't think we've published enough for people to be able to go and copy this in any meaningful way. You know, it's two screenshots and a high-level explanation of how the backdoor works. So I think we've struck a okay balance there. But I just want to be fair that the FBI had those concerns. And although the AFP didn't provide a statement, I imagine their concerns to be along the same sort of lines. But this is all a balance. You know, there's always a balance between what we publish and what we don't publish. And those are just the conversations that you have to have. And I mean conversations sort of internally and not even conversations necessarily with agencies. I just mean editorially and internally. This is something we have to um, spell out and contend with. Uh, Emery Lee 2014 has a good comment. Well, that is a serious, serious conundrum for both parties in the case. Uh, it is. It's, it's interesting. I think that's one of the, the, the kind of the meta conversation about this that involves what you as a journalist think is appropriate to publish 
uh, how you navigate that, how you navigate law enforcement. Because, and again, these are trials that are ongoing, right? These are mm-hmm. things that are actually happening now. People's freedom is in the balance. Um, it, it, it's interesting. It, it is interesting to me uh, to see how all of this is playing out. And I, I think this is one of those stories that, like you said, you're kind of one of the first reporters on the scene of all this stuff. But it's this kind of thing is just going to happen more and more. Right. As the government gets more as governments around the world get more tech savvy. I would be very, very surprised if they're not already doing something similar. I don't mean specifically with this bot code or anything like that. And to be clear, the statement never said this was being used in an active investigation. You know, it does not say that in the statement. But I'm just talking generally in that the idea that the FBI or the AFP or whoever could be behind some sort of messaging platform why would they not do it again? <laughs> this is this has been an insanely successful operation. You know, yes, there may be legal issues that can, they have to get ironed out through the courts, but this was an incredible coup for law enforcement around the world. Yeah. All right, JC, thank you again for coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. Uh, if you like the show, please follow us on Twitch where you can watch it live. We're going, we go live on at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV. If you follow us there, you will get notified when we go live. Um, if you are, you know what I forgot to do? I forgot to record an ad break, which means I'm going to have to do it after I get off. Retroactively. Retroactively. Oh, that's, uh, my workflow is all disrupted now and I'm upset. All right. (laughs) We will be back next week with two more stories about, uh, all of the crazy stuff that's going on on the internet. Thank you all so very much for listening. I'm Matthew Galt here with Joseph Cox. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.